Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everybody, welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. But before we get to that, I just would ask if you have the wherewithal, if you could go over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and give OnScript a rating, an honest, sober, five-star rating, that would be very helpful to us. And I also want to say a special thanks to Ed Hatkey for faithfully producing this show and to Rebecca Terhune for all her help with marketing and media. And to all of you who give regularly, that's so kind of you, and we really appreciate that. So thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. We have with us today Nisha Jr., Associate Professor of Religion at Temple University, who has been with OnScript before discussing her book, Womanist Biblical Interpretation. She will be visiting faculty at Harvard University in the coming academic year and is the author of a new book, Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, published by Oxford University Press. Nisha, welcome back. Thank you. I, I read recently, going to get to the important stuff here right at the beginning, that you started taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, I, I assume that the, that the, that the lockdown has has hindered that or is it um yes <laughs> are you still able to uh, practice your jujitsu so um they are doing zoom classes um uh, there are some people who actually live at the studio so oh, um that's commitment <laughs> yes uh, i think it was um economical for some folks so um, they have still been having classes. I have not been participating in those classes, um, but I hope to get back to it after, after Corona, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Now I had I I had to look up Brazilian Jiu Jitsu because um, yeah yeah I, I know go figure, and um, I read and this is straight from Wikipedia. It says it's a self defense martial art and combat sport based on grappling, ground fighting, and submission holds. Focusing on the skill of controlling one's opponents through a number of techniques that force him or her to submit via chokeholds and joint locks. And I thought, wow, that. so what inspired that and what are your aspirations there? Uh, so I actually started studying karate when I was in grad school. I needed something to help me deal with the rage and... Um, there was a karate studio that wasn't too far from campus. So I started with that. And then over time, I've done different martial arts. So I've practiced karate, uh, Krav Maga, um, some boxing, some kickboxing, and now Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And do you have a favorite? Mm, All of them are different. Um, So um, I remember one of my professors saying, you know, Semitic languages are really easy once you know all of them. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. kind of like that. Um, yeah. They feed into each other and work together. And so you're, 
in the autumn, I mean, of course, everything's uh, provisional right now in terms of exactly timing and everything like that, but you're going to be uh, visiting faculty at Harvard University. So first of all, congrats on that. And what are you going to be doing there? Thanks. So I'll be at Harvard Divinity School, and I'll be one of the research associates in the Women's Studies and Religion program. Um, I'll be working on a new project on Jarena Lee, who's a black woman evangelist. And the um, and the prob well, the main issue is that I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to go. So I just got an email today that um, said basically be in touch. So the idea of the program is that you would be in residence in Cambridge, but um, if we're still under shelter in place orders, I don't know that they will ask. Uh, the five research associates to actually relocate just to meet by Zoom from a Cambridge address. Uh, so it's it's up in the air, but I'm I'm excited to at least have the the time to focus on a new project. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a um, a great opportunity, and I hope I hope it works out. If not right at the beginning of September, at least shortly after that. Um, so you. In your, your new book, Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, um, which has a, a beautiful cover, by the way, and it's a really uh, well, well-written book, um, you discuss various ways that African-American interpreters have approached the Bible. Um, help, help our listeners understand the range of approaches people have taken to, uh, that African-American interpreters have taken to the Bible. And I know you know, you're dealing with a, a wide range of tradition here. So what are some of the main uh, approaches? Mm, that's a tough question. I think I would I would answer it this way. Part of what I was trying to do in the book was to talk about African-American interpretation and to look for it in places you might not ordinarily think of. So I think uh, as biblical scholars, we usually think of biblical interpretation. We think about journal articles, commentaries, um, SBL, those types of things. And what I was trying to do is extend our ideas about biblical interpretation to people and genres that we might not normally expect. So when we talk about African-American interpretation, um, and I did this a little bit in my first book, An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation, but one of the things that I wanted to drive home was the idea that um, African-Americans have been reading the Bible for longer than there have been African-American professionally trained biblical scholars. So part of the idea of the project is to extend our ideas about biblical interpretation and about uh, black contributions to that. And you uh you say at numerous points in the book that black as a racialized category was not available to biblical writers. Um, and that's an important point that you emphasize throughout the book. Um, and so when, when we read, for instance, in the Song of Songs where it says, dark am I and lovely, or black am I and lovely, daughters of Jerusalem as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. So with what concept are biblical writers working there, and how does that dif- differ from contemporary understandings of black? Good question. Um, very complex question, but uh, in brief, I would say, particularly in that text, 
it appears that the writer is talking about skin coloration and not a sense of race. So um, when we think about race frequently, particularly in the U.S., um, often people think of it as something that is um, timeless and has been with us since the garden somehow. But our notions of race in the modern age usually are biologically determined, that we think of particular groups of people um, as having race. And um, ancient writers definitely understood that there were differences among people, but it was more what we would think of in terms of ethnicity. So ancient writers understood that people came in different, uh, different skin colors, different hair texture. Um, ancient writers understood that um, people spoke different languages, had different customs, um, different religious beliefs, different religious practices, wore different types of clothing, um, ate different types of food. So all, all of those kinds of things that for us normally fall under the category of ethnicity, but not the same type of biologically determined fixed sense of race that we have today. And it's that biological notion that kind of defines modern conceptions of race. Is that correct? Yes, but it's, I mean, it's all very messy and muddled. So, for example, in the U.S., um, the, new, um, the new census forms are very confusing. So there's a section for Black and African American, but then there's a different section for Egyptian as if Egypt isn't in Africa, it's so it's it's all it's all very strange and all of as I understand it, uh, each census has had some different notion of uh, racial and ethnic groupings in the U.S., which by itself just uh, illustrates how how messy this is. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting the mention of Egypt because that plays into your book too, where you talk about how. Um, you know, in the the 18th and 19th century literature, Egypt was treated separately from the rest of Africa, or at least Northern Africa was treated separately because it was associated um, with with Arab ethnicity rather than you know other parts of Africa. So um, yeah, that that comes up, and actually, I want to come back to that later. Um, but in in this book, you feature the character of Hagar. So what, what drew your attention to her in the first place? Was there a kind of moment where you thought, huh, I've, I've got a lot of questions about her and I want to pursue her as a character? It was really students. So I was teaching at Howard University at the School of Divinity, and I explain this a little in the book. Um, one of the things that I do is show students uh, images of biblical figures. So uh, sculpture, painting, woodcuts, lots of different types of uh, medium. And um, I'd been talking about Abraham, Abraham's family, Genesis. And most of the paintings that day were European. And so nearly everyone um, was ivory skinned. And at some point I showed them a uh, painting of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, and the class just said, oh, my goodness, come on. We all know Hagar is black. And I 
thought that was really interesting um, because they hadn't had the same reaction to Adam and Eve or other characters that we've been talking about. And um, I, I really have to credit my students at Howard for helping me to, to start the project and to think more about where might this idea come from, particularly when I think many of us in the Western world, particularly in the U.S., have the idea and think of most biblical characters as white or as being depicted as European. Do you think that there, I mean, it, that's that's interesting that they all had that reaction. Do you think it was um, because she's Egyptian or is there something else behind it? And that's what you were uncovering in the book. Well, that's kind of what I was trying to uncover in the book. So I think a large part of it comes from uh, womanist theologian Dolores Williams. And I talk about her a great deal in the book. Um, she's the writer of Sisters in the Wilderness, um, which is um, for many years now has been a standard work in theology, particularly in feminist and womanist theology. And in the book, she deals with the figure of Hagar. And um, while she doesn't explicitly identify her as black, she makes a lot of parallels and comparisons between the experiences of black American women and those of Hagar. And I think that that's one of the things that contributes to this idea of Hagar as a black woman. So since we're speaking about Hagar here, let's get some of the basic facts on the on the table. Um, starting with the the Hebrew Bible, how, who is Hagar and how is she portrayed there and in then on into the New Testament? Sure. So she appears primarily in Genesis 16 and then in Genesis 21 and in the New Testament shows up in um, primarily in Galatians. So um, she is an Egyptian woman. She is enslaved and she uh, belongs to Sarah, which um, how this all happens, how she winds up with them uh, is a, is a, a longer story. Um, long story short, uh, Sarah's unable to uh, get pregnant and has the idea that Hagar could be a surrogate. Um, she gives her to Abraham uh, as a wife. Uh, Hagar conceives and then, uh, as I say in class, and then drama ensues. So um, to continue with the story, um, so uh, Hagar is pregnant and uh, there is some drama between her and Sarah. Um, it appears that that she um, thinks highly of herself now that she is pregnant. And Sarah abuses her in some way, whether this is physical or psychological, isn't entirely clear. Um, and Hagar runs away, has uh, an experience with the divine a theophany while she is in the wilderness. And uh, the messenger or angel sends her back. Um, she has the baby, and this is Ishmael, so the child of Abraham and Hagar is Ishmael. Fast forward to 21, um, Sarah 
now has a child, Isaac. So it's Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. Um, and Sarah is concerned about Isaac after she sees Ishmael with Isaac. It's not entirely clear what's going on between Ishmael and Isaac that gives her this concern. Um, but then she wants them kicked out of the house. Abraham's a little reluctant, but uh, does so after God says it's cool. And so Hagar and Ishmael are expelled. Um, they're out in the wilderness. What are they going to do? Um, they get kicked out with basically like a sandwich and a bottle of water. And uh, out in the wilderness, uh, Hagar cries out to God. God hears the voice of the boy, not of her. And um, they live on, but we don't hear more from them. So that's sort of the quick, yeah, that's yeah, the rundown. No, that's good. That's, that, that's a really helpful summary. And uh, there's, there's one possible reemergence of Hagar, um, you know, according to uh, Jewish tradition that doesn't, you know, there's no, nothing conclusive in the Bible about this. But I, I, I like the tantalizing suggestion that, that Keturah, um, Abraham's wife, might be Hagar. Yes. I think that's an intriguing option. Um, but it's a, it's a little hard to have any certainty on that one. It's, it's interesting too, that you have this, this emphasis, uh, in Genesis and even on into Exodus and other parts of the Old Testament about, uh, Israelite men taking wives or concubines who are non-Israelite. Again, like you said, we're not in sort of racialized territory, but there there does seem to be a, a kind of deliberate wrestling with ethnicity, with Judah taking Batshua and Joseph and Asenath and Moses and Zipporah and Ruth and Boaz. So do you think there's any, I mean, is there a kind of like conscious wrestling through those um, issues in parts of the Old Testament? And, and in what way does that contribute to uh, the kind of work that you're you're doing with Hagar? I think you definitely see some wrestling there with questions of who are the Israelites and how are they different from others? Um, the, the threat of difference in some texts, um, particularly women, uh, foreign women, the strange women, and the threat that they might pose to uh, Israelite order. For me, I wasn't so much concerned with those questions within the text uh, and dealing with kind of themes or issues of difference in ethnicity, as much as I was really trying to focus in on this particular question of blackness. And part of the reason why I was doing that is because I feel that for me, it was a less interesting project to try to just look at Hagar in lots of different times and places. So for me, the way that I chose to do this project and the way that I do reception history is not, let's just collect a lot of different examples and point, isn't that interesting how this happens? Um, but what I was really trying to do was super tightly focus in on this question of how does she become black? And really, it turned out that that narrow question alone was uh, bigger and broader than I had anticipated. But that was really what I was trying to to hone in on. So I didn't talk about 
um, marrying women who are non-Israelite. I didn't talk about uh, differences in different time periods or in different books of foreign women or or um, people who are marrying into Israelite culture. But I really just focused on this narrow question. Yeah. So you you trace the reception of Hagar, and you keep asking that question, how and when does she become black? Um, One of the questions I had, too, along the way was, when do racialized conceptions of blackness even become a possibility? Yes. So this is a good question. This is also way more complicated than than I had realized. I want want one date. When that happens. Um, I, I can't give you a date. What I can do is point you to some resources, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, so if you're on Twitter, make sure you look at hashtag B-L-K-A-A-R-S-B-L, which is um, a hashtag where I collect lots of the work of black scholars in AAR and SBL, and that has um, lots of stuff there. Um, But definitely look at the work of, uh, for example, Brian Rainey on race and ethnicity, um, Rodney Sadler um, on Kushite, and also uh, Gay Byron on symbolic blackness in early Christian literature. So what I will say is part of the issue with blackness is that it's understood at different places differently and at different times very differently, and some of those roll into each other. So, um, again, people in the ancient world did understand there to be differences in ethnicity. For modern period, when we start to talk about blackness, again, there's still all of these questions about how that's understood. So, for example, if you're familiar with the, the 1619 Project, have you heard about this, the New York Times... Yeah. Yeah, the 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 podcast. Um, it's a podcast. It's uh, newspaper articles. It's okay. A, yeah, I've listened to okay. the podcast, so I'm I'm caught up all there. All right. So um, <laughs> there has been all of this work with the New York Times looking at the 1619 project, um, but historians have questions about whether or not the first Africans in the U.S are what we would think of still as enslaved or how, how do categories fit when often the categories are after the fact? So at the time, people aren't asking the same questions that we do when we look later. Yeah, what were the operative categories in 1619 and how do they match up with categories from a later period. And and in different geographic regions. So how does that fit in Virginia and how might that be different in Brazil, in Cuba, in Jamaica, all of those kinds of things. So um, yeah, again, the, the project was much more complicated than I thought it was going to be, even as I tried to have a super tight, narrow research question. Yeah, and I'm going to fast forward, you know, uh, from from the New Testament, where you have uh, Hagar appearing in the, in Galatians four in this allegorical piece that Paul has, and and you follow through um, uh, the Quran and other literature uh, all the way to anti and pro slavery literature, and I just wanted to pause there for a moment. So you you talk about this one. I don't know if it's a pamphlet or a book. Is called the Selling of Joseph, a memorial where a, a, a man named Samuel uh, Sewell 
refutes arguments supporting the the possession of slaves by quoting Exodus twenty one sixteen, which says, "He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death." And then his opponent, John Saffin, responds that it wasn't wrong for Abraham and others to own slaves, but it was wrong for Joseph and his brothers to sell him. Uh, so pro slavery advocates tended to appeal to Hagar texts, but didn't racialize her. Why? And maybe this gets at that question, which you were just raising. Why did they not do it? Because it seems like for for a pro-slavery writer, you know, it almost seems surprising that they wouldn't racialize yes, a text like right. that. You would think so. <laughs> and yet, yeah. that is not what I found in the literature. Yeah. Did you keep expecting it to happen? I really did. Um but, yeah. I, I mean, with this kind of project, the things you expect aren't there and the things you never would have imagined are. So, um, again, this comes around to the question of uh, understandings of Egypt. And even today, as I mentioned with the census example, um, there are people who don't think of Egypt as part of Africa, that somehow Egypt or Northern Africa, um, frequently you might hear it as um, Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa or, or different, um, different ways that people try to slice up the territory. Um, part of that is rooted in the idea of thinking that Egypt as a civilization has something to contribute and we have to separate that um, this white supremacist idea that we have to separate that from any notions of um, blackness, which is read as uncivilized and not as contributing anything to society. So when I when I read that material and really started digging into it, it, it started to make sense that, oh, yes, they're not thinking about Egypt as being a place where there would be black people, and they're not thinking of Hagar as enslaved the way you might think of um, the system of enslavement in the U.S. So, for example, in some instances, there were clear mentions of Hagar as, oh, well, she wasn't, the thinking was, oh, she wasn't like a regular enslaved person. She was more like um, a lady's maid, so this isn't someone that you uh, had out in the field. They weren't thinking of Hagar as like out in the field picking cotton, um, but rather as someone who was a, a, a yeah. personal she assistant. She had some kind of status. Yes. And, so, and the, the, yeah. again, the thinking ran that if you, are, if you are pressing someone into service to serve as a surrogate for esteemed patriarch Abraham— um, certainly you would pick um, what you thought of as kind of top quality. So we see that today when you think about someone who is, um, uh, I, I teach at Temple, and so you see ads for, um, we're looking for um, a college student of certain height, certain hair color, certain eye color to uh, donate eggs. And you might see flyers like that on campus. So people have in mind something specific when they are thinking of someone who is going to carry their child. So the thinking was that certainly 
Hagar must have been high status because Sarah selected her. Right. And so, um, and you have this great phrase you said of, of Hagar, you know, in referring to interpretations like that, that her, her darkness then is, it's not racialized, but exoticized. So there's, there's an aspect to not, maybe not in those particular pro anti-slavery texts, but other, other interpreters, uh, later on in the 18th, 19th century where, uh, Hagar is because she's Egyptian, Egypt, Egypt is sort of the exotic part of Africa, and and so that she doesn't fit into a kind of um, racialized category. Then. Yes. So there, there are texts that talk about her as, um, you know, dusky, <laughs> maybe um, or dusky. I've never right, heard that one. Um, you know, shades of brown, but not black. Um, that she was different somehow than. Sarah and Abraham, um, but just just a little bit different. So, like on Twitter, they would call her like spicy white, like not European, but you know, a little touch of something. So, <laughs> so they they yeah. they were not thinking of her as a black woman in the ways that, uh, as I mentioned, my students at Howard or other um, black Americans began to think of her when they paralleled their experiences with what they saw happening with Hagar. Yeah. And I want to get to how she does become black in a moment, but I want to pause here and do a speed round with you. And, and the speed round is where you have just uh, a few seconds to answer off the top of your head. All right. Top tip for life during lockdown. Top tip for life during lockdown. Um, this is not normal, so stop trying to pretend it is. What's a book or movie that's really made you think recently? A book or movie that made me think recently. Mm, a Portrait of a Lady on Fire was on Hulu, and it uh, made me think about women's culture, women as artists and uh, women as creators. Okay. Uh, who do you consider the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Most significant book? I, hmm, I'm, I will say one of the most significant books for me is Stony the Road, uh, edited by Kane Hope Felder. Uh, the late Kane Hope Felder was my uh, colleague when I taught at Howard. Um, I wrote a piece on him last year for uh, religion and politics, and I think um, his work and his life and legacy was really important for me as a biblical scholar. That gets at another one of my speed round questions, uh, which was, who's one of your heroes? Would he fit into that category? I think so, yes. Um, I would say um, Cain Hope Felder and other Biblical scholars who uh, have paved the way for me to be able to do the the type of, of work that I do. Yes. What's the best novel you've read in the last year? Mm, has it been? A, it has not been in the last year, but I would say The Known World is really fantastic. Um, what else have I read recently? Pachinko is really good. I enjoyed that. And 
Mm. Oh, I think I I uh, I reread Sula last year. Yes, so that would be my pick. All right, good recommendations. Uh, what are some ways that you've learned through failure? Learned through failure. Just uh, revise and resubmit. Uh, if we uh, once again have freedom of movement, where do you want to go most? Uh, I need to get to the hair salon. <laughs> okay. I have, I have been texting right. my hairstylist um, photos of my own feeble efforts to do my own hair. And she is threatening me that I better not cut it myself. So, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I would imagine it's hard to do on your own. So, um, the whole like backward in the mirror thing, I, I think there's going to be a rush on hair salons when, when, uh, we're able to, to go back. Um, uh, going back to, uh, Nisha in high school, uh, what, what tell me about the social groups that you were, you, you were part of. Oh, like the breakfast club or something? Yeah. Yeah. What was your, uh, you know, were you? How would you describe the social group you're part um, of? That is a tough one. So um, my, uh, I went to school in the South. My, my parents both went to segregated schools. And I went to the, uh, the new high school that was uh, desegregated but not integrated. So I was in uh, AP and advanced and college prep classes. We were all tracked. Um, and that was primarily with white students. And I saw black folks at lunch and gym and choir. So, so you, you were in a school where white and black students were together in the school, but not integrated? Yes, because of the tracking system. So, again, my parents went to just a straight, this is a black school, there are black teachers, all of that. Um, so those schools were uh, usually torn down. The new school was built. So I went to the new school. But even though black and white students were there, um, there was a tracking system. And the way that it ended up working was that the students who had been to private school, white students, wealthier students, uh, were tracked into the college prep track. And I was one of the few black students who was in that track. Right. So it's kind of implicit segregation, but not Right. That's explicit. why I said it was, it, it was, we were there, but it wasn't integrated. Um, yeah. So I don't think I was really part of a group. I kind of went back and forth um, depending on which class and which which period. Yeah, what was that experience like for you? Uh, I mean, it wasn't as bad as um, students who were, let's say, bust. Like, I mean, I wasn't dealing with, I wasn't a black student dealing with busing in Boston or something like that. Um, and we were, it wasn't something you really talked about or discussed. It was just, um, this is the way it is. I think that... Uh, I think my parents really did not understand what I was experiencing daily because of their own experiences. Um, so again, my parents went to school where they knew all of the kids, they knew all of the teachers, their parents knew the teachers. There was a community understanding about 
what they were supposed to be doing and what everyone's responsibility was. So like my parents went to school at the time when if you did something at school, your parents knew about it before you got home and you, you got in trouble at school and when you got home. Uh, all of that was destroyed with desegregation. Um, many black teachers were fired. Um, so that, uh, that community model that my parents had was not available to me. Um, and my parents were just, you know, very pragmatic. You, <laughs> you better go to school and get your lesson. Yeah. What, what area was this? This is in Florida. Okay. On a lighter note about where you grew up, I was going to ask what your favorite restaurant was. Oh, uh, you know, we didn't really, restaurants weren't my thing. I mean, good food was at somebody's house if, if you really wanted good food. So my grandmother. So what was the best food? Yes, my grandmother, grandmother was, um, my grandmother cooked, you know, I mean, it's, like huge Southern meals for Sunday dinner, that kind of thing. Sounds yes. fantastic. Um, okay. So I, we all know as, as writers and authors that um, Amazon and other ratings are helpful for getting our work out there. And I thought that at Onskirt, we could do a service to a random author. So as an act of service to the writing profession, so I, I went on Google and I did a random word generator, and then I'm gonna and then I plugged that word into Amazon, and the first book is the one. I'm wondering if you could um, just without knowing the book, if you could give it a rating, uh, and then explain why. So the uh, the random gen, uh, word generator came up with the word mosquito. Mosquito. Yep. Okay. And then um, that I plugged that into Amazon under Amazon Books, and the book is. The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, by Timothy Weingard, Mark Deacons, etc. There are uh, several authors. So what, what rating do you give this book? How many stars and why? A Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Um, well, listen, I just said I'm from Florida, so... Um, I'm, I'm giving it a five because I think we need to know more about mosquitoes. Definitely coming from Florida. Yeah. I, I lived in, um, Atlanta for a couple of years and, and the, um, the Asian tiger mosquito, I don't know if you've, they had them in Florida. That's what they were called at least. Um, and they had, you could actually see stripes on them when they flew and they were out, they were out in the middle of the day in the heat and it could be as dry as anything and they would be out in numbers. So yeah, I thought it sounded like an interesting book. Okay. Last question. Um, favorite music style and musician. This is nearly impossible. Um, I will say today. Um, A snapshot in time. This week I've been listening to lots of Fela and, um, yeah, so just a general, you know, Afrobeat groove in the house has been good this week. All right, now let's get back to Hagar. Um, an important part of your book is this iconic figure called Aunt Hagar. So uh, is this a description of 
you know, a familial connection to, to the Hagar in the Bible, or who is she? This is such a good question. So, um, it might sound a little weird, so people should just read the book, and then you'll, it, will, it will all make sense to you. But in brief, I think that the part of the reason why Black folks tend to think of Hagar as Black is less to do with the biblical figure of Hagar and more to do with what I'm calling an Aunt Hagar figure. So uh, I have not been able to pinpoint a particular date, and part of that might be because this is related to oral culture. But the idea of Hagar as almost a sort of uh, Eve figure for Black folks, as someone who uh, is thought of as a kind of mother figure. So I think part of what happens is this idea of biblical Hagar connecting that with Black women's experiences and this idea of a cultural um, Mother Eve kind of Hagar come together, and that lends itself to this idea of thinking of Hagar as a Black woman. So there's a so this is the kind of moment when well not a moment because we don't know the moment but this is the point at which they converge, and so you have like a traditional um, iconic figure in African American communities uh, of Aunt Hagar, and then you've got Hagar in the Bible, and as people interact with the Bible or as as writers begin to talk about contemporary experiences and Hagar and the Bible, they begin to collapse the two. Is that kind of what happens? I think that's part of what happens. I think especially with the work of Dolores Williams and then other, um, other Black women academics, particularly in biblical studies and religious studies, I think that it, it comes together. And, and again, Dolores, it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And again, it's, it sounds complicated. And so um, the <laughs> in the book, I try to lay it out as clearly as possible, um, which is difficult in part because, again, it's um, I'm trying to trace something that's moving in a lot of different directions. Yeah. And, and I think you, you do a really good job of sort of showing the different traditions through time and how they're reading Hagar and then pausing and saying, okay, but we're not yet at the point where we're talking about a racialized conception of blackness, or we're not yet talking about a black Hagar here. So you, you do give a, a, a good sort of overview of the history of a, of a time period, and then pause for the reader to say, okay, here's where we're at now. So I, I thought that was really helpful. Um, so we'll let readers uh, dive into that part of your book. Um, you also ex express some reservations about efforts to read Black women's experience into the Bible. And you mentioned by way of analogy, uh, the work of Amy Jill Levine, who talks about how Hagar can become, and I'm quoting her here, I think you quote her in the book, an archetypal minority victim. And then Sarah becomes, uh, comes to epitomize white colonialist, patriarchal, and usually Jewish privilege. So what are some of the risks and limits of of these kinds of perspectival readings of the Bible? Well, I think one of the concerns is um, Dr. Levine lifts up is that, 
you then read back into the text other types of issues and debates. So, um, for example, there are some, um, some scholars who think of Hagar as a single woman, as a single mother. So um, comparing her experiences of being a single mother raising a son with those of black women who are single mothers. But she isn't a single mother. She is married, in fact, to Abraham uh, and is kicked out of the house, which is a very different experience than uh, that specifically of being a single mom. So one of the things that um, I try to talk about gingerly is when you make these kinds of moves, usually people are leaving out some of the tale, some of the details of the text. So when I've talked about this with uh, other people, for example, um, some are shocked to find out that Hagar was in fact married to Abraham or, or is his wife, is considered to be a legitimate wife and is not um, described in other terms that you that biblical Hebrew has available to uh, think of different types of relationships. Yeah. It was an interesting place to kind of uh, land at the end. I, I might expect, oh, okay, I, I would assume that you want to sort of help African-American women and readers identify with people in the Bible, but you're saying... Well, we have to recognize the, the pitfalls of doing that at the same time, right? Yes. So I've given presentations on this. And uh, once I, one of the members of the audience um, who appeared to be a member of the community was upset um, and didn't like my conclusions, didn't like my presentation, uh, wanted an answer. Why was Hagar black? So I think she wanted me to say, yes, Hagar was black. And I said, oh, but that's not my project. And she was like, but that was, but to, to her, that was the point. I was supposed to say, um, Hagar was black, has been overlooked, and should be revered as a mother and heroine. Um, yeah, that's just not what I was trying to do. Um, and I, I realized that may be disappointing for some. So wh where is it then that you want to leave readers of your book? To, you know, what do you want them to take away from it? Um, I think there are lots of, lots of different things, but one thing would be that, um, the way that we think of texts and figures in the Bible is not always the way that other readers have thought about those texts and figures. Um, and so what we might think of as, uh, of course, or everyone thinks that, or everyone knows that, that's very much not the case, that there is a history to biblical interpretation. Uh, and sometimes our contemporary readings match with those of other interpreters, and, and often they do not. So... Part of it for me is hoping that people will take away a sense of the 
importance and uh, some of the benefits of doing this type of reception history. Yeah. Well, Naisha, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. And uh, you've got another book coming out soon, uh, co-authored on Black Samson. Is that the name of it? Yes, it's called Black Samson, The Untold Story of an American Icon. Um, I co-authored the book with my Temple University colleague, Jeremy Skipper. And the book is with Oxford University Press. Mm, Due to Corona... We're not sure when it's coming out. It should be this summer. Um, and uh, the ebook, at least, should be out this summer, even if the print copy isn't available yet. Okay, perfect. We'll look forward to that. And thanks again for your time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.